Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and today we are going to be talking about the modern rock charts from October 1990. I'm joined today by Steve Berlin. Welcome. Howdy. Steve, you are a multi-instrumentalist producer. True. You are probably best known as being a member of Los Lobos. Probably. You have worked with many, many modern rock artists. R.E.M., Faith No More, The Smithereens, The Replacements, Dan Ridgway. All true. All right. Well, thank you for coming in. My pleasure. Should we refresh our memories on what was going on back in October 1990? That would be good. Okay. On top of the Billboard Hot 100, the number one song was uh, something called Close to You by Maxi Priest. Interesting. Yeah, I don't remember that one. I don't remember that one either. No. um, The number one movie in America was Marked for Death with Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal. Mm-hmm. Golly. And uh, there were some big court cases going on related to music at the time. Some members of Two Live Crew were acquitted on obscenity charges, right. and a Florida record store owner was found guilty of obscenity for selling Two Live Two Crew Live records. Crew. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. We had 200,000 U.S. forces in the Persian Gulf, Right. and the channel was completed. Big year. Yeah. No, that was all in October. So, were you aware of modern rock at oh, the yeah. time? Yeah, yeah, hugely, yeah. Yeah, were you a fan? Yeah, very much so. I mm-hmm. mean, we're in kind of in the middle of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. At that time, we were considered a modern rock band, so... Yeah, I was going to ask you, you considered Los Lobos to be a yeah, modern rock band? I would have to say so. I mean, we were signed to Warner Brothers, where a lot of that stuff was happening. So, you know, the replacements, uh, R.E.M., I mean, I think um, those were our contemporaries at that time. So, yeah, I'd say we were a modern rock band for sure. Okay, cool. Why don't we just listen to the first song? Okay. The first band we're going to hear is The Replacements. Yeah, we've talked about them on the show. They've been on here a couple times, so I'm not going to give the whole backstory, but they were formed in 1979 in Minneapolis, and they're considered pioneers of alternative rock. They are. They're amazing. We played with them a couple times. I played on the last Replacements record Mm -hmm. myself, which was a really Paul Westerberg record. And uh, yeah, I just love them then. I love them now. love everything they've done i'm a big bastion pop fan um, tommy's band i think is amazing mm-hmm. you talk my language yeah good good so um yeah in 1990 they released their final album under the name the replacements called all shook down right. and like you said it was more of a solo record i mean i, I played on more stuff than anybody else in the band besides paul i think really yeah i think paul was kind of pulling away from the idea of the replacements and mm-hmm. the label was somewhat averse to it i don't think he was well advised at the time my memory of those sessions is that he, I know he's like in the middle of detox or just finishing one or something, but you know, he just seemed miserable. He just seemed like very unhappy. I thought the songs were unbelievable. I mean, so as a fan, I was just blown away by how great they were, but he was not a happy guy. Like he was just sort of super quiet, let uh, Scott Litt, who produced it, run the show. Yeah. But it's a great record. Yeah, I mean, it's, really, a, it's a great it record. Yeah. Really great. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, according to what I've read, the rest of the replacements all do appear to various yeah, degrees. They all made it on there, but I, I mean, I was there for at least a couple of days. I'd mm-hmm. say like better part of you know shy of a week. Okay, but I didn't see any of the other guys really the whole okay. time. It was um, just the like session guys. Yeah, I also um, other people who appeared on the album include John Cale, Ben Montench, yeah. and Jeanette Napolitano. Uh-huh. Did you work with any of them? No, you know most of my stuff. The, the you know like the songs had been tracked and sung for the most part, mm-hmm. so I was just sort of like the icing. So I did a bunch of percussion stuff, which is you know. How did you get funny. brought in for that? 
Scott was a good friend of mine. Okay. Um, I played on a few different records that he produced in that moment. Uh, what's the guy's name? I was an Australian artist, Paul... Paul Kelly? Paul Kelly. Thank right. you. Yes. Yeah. Really great songwriter. You know, I, Scott and I were good friends, and, you know, when there was a moment, he'd, he'd always bring me into his projects. So I think that's actually how I met R.E.M. the first time, too, was oh, when Scott was sure. doing was working with them. Yeah. So um, in spite of all the problems, like you said, All Shook Down is a very strong album, and it was ranked number three on Rolling Stone's Best Albums of 1990 list. Wow. And the first single released from this album was called Merry Go Round. Uh, that's what we're going to hear. Cool. It, it hit number one on the modern rock charts for four non-consecutive weeks, dropping to a resurging Never Enough by The Cure, and then falling to Jane's Addiction, before retaking the top spot for the first three weeks of November. Golly. So this makes it, along with I'll Be You, the replacement's biggest hit, which seems kind of crazy. It does until seem a you, crazy. Until you remember that the modern rock charts didn't exist when I Will Dare and Left right. the Dial and Bastards of Young and right. all that stuff were released. So it's yeah. still pretty amazing that the replacement's had number one modern rock record. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Okay, well, uh, let's, let's go ahead and listen to it. Here yeah, it is, cool. uh, Merry Go Round. In you knew how much it cost A troubled dog around your neck when you lost You wouldn't make a sound, but I could hear your little heart pound And I watched your feet slip off the ground All right, what'd cool. you think? Paul owns those chords, you know, those, not to get too technical, but there's like a suspension thing that he does in a lot of the songs. That they're literally a trademark, Paul Westerberg. I mean, lots of people can play those chords, but they don't sound like those chords unless Paul plays them right. that way. And to a similar extent, you know, Tommy Stenson's songs are, it's almost like Steely Dan, where they have their, their own chord color that only they can achieve, that mm-hmm. they effectively own. And uh, I like stuff like that, you know, it's kind of hard to own a chord. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he does. I love this whole record. I mean, that, that's sadly beautiful. I think it's my favorite song on the record, but uh, you know, that's a good one. I like this song a lot. I'm trying to see where I place it in their canon, and it's hard to compare it to it's, their early you know, stuff. It's funny because I mean, it really is a Paul solo song. So I mean, like the the band stuff, like the you know the early stuff, I will dare and all this stuff. I mean, it's kind of a different in my head anyway. I think I consider them two different things. You know, because sure. the band, yeah. You know, they didn't have a professional drummer with really good time, you know. So <laughs> right. It's kind of, yeah. it's a little different. Yeah. Okay. After this, no more replacements. Paul resurfaced a couple of years later with some songs on the singles soundtrack, mm-hmm. which was kind of a big deal, I guess, at the right. time. Yep. And like you said, Tommy Stinson formed the group Bash and Pop. And I was amazed to discover that he later joined Guns N' Roses. Yes, he did. And appeared on their Chinese Democracy album. That's uh Quite an achievement, considering it took them, what, nine years to make the <laughs> yeah, record. Yep. And uh, Chris Mars and Slim Dunlap both released some solo albums within a few years. Yeah. Um, I've not heard those, but I, I read a really good review of Chris Mars's first yeah. solo uh, album. I know I heard it back in the era, but I, I know it didn't stick. Okay. But I'm still, you know, like I said, I'm a, I've been wearing a Bastion Pop sweatshirt all winter. Okay. So. 
Yeah. I am still a big fan. All right, well. He played here. I actually, I've seen him a couple of times, actually. He opened for X not too long ago, and then he came here and played at the bunk bar and was just falling down drunk. Yeah. And I could just, I was in the studio all day. I just caught like the last 20 minutes, but it was like, okay, that's perfect. Nice. Okay. So after one week on top, we've got a new number one band, and that is Jane's Addiction, who we just talked about last episode with a different song. Today we're going to be hearing Been Caught Stealing. Okay. I so, guess so. Yeah, this is an LA band. They were formed in 1985. In 1990, they released their second studio album, Ritual, De yeah. Lo Habitual. Yeah, right. And the original cover art featured both male and female nudity in puppet form. Right. And it was actually an art piece inspired by a three-day, three-way sex and heroin bender. But this cover was declared outrageous and indecent, and it led to at least one arrest when a record store owner in Michigan displayed a promo poster for the album. Goodness gracious. Yeah. So as a result, Jane's Addiction released two different covers, one with the naked puppets and one that was white with black text of the band's name, the album name, and the First Amendment. (laughs) And the back of this edition also featured the following semi-cryptic message. Hitler's syphilis-ridden dreams almost came true. How could it happen? By taking control of the media. An entire country was led by a lunatic. We must protect our First Amendment before sick dreams become law. Nobody made fun of Hitler? I don't know what that means. Gee, you think we would have learned something in 30 years? (laughs) Yeah. But interesting, you know, I think times have changed. I certainly recall seeing a lot of maybe more shocking album yeah, covers since then there's certainly been a few more shocking but you know i remember the the hubbub in the time yeah yeah i was interested by jane's but but i didn't own any of the records it didn't seem serious i guess to me sure perry would do just all this outrageous stuff like you know now it's somewhat shop worn <laughs> it's right. kind of hard to do but right he was very effective at it like mm-hmm. he'd, you know he'd say or do something it would make the the papers or whatever people would be talking about it for you know a week or something like that so yeah in an era before twitter and uh instant social media he seemed to have a, a handle on how to get people to pay attention to him. yeah and so they were from la and so were you yeah different circles Somewhat, yeah. I would say our circle was a little bit more stupid word, but roots based. You know, sure, sure. But I, I, you know, I didn't dismiss it. I paid attention to mm-hmm. it, and I thought the song was kind of cool. You know, it was, it was all over rock radio at the time. And I remember right. hearing it eighteen million times. Yep. I think I saw them someplace, and they weren't a good live band. They, they were really sloppy and not in the charming replacements way. But they seemed to be just like they didn't give a shit. So it was okay. like, a, I'm all about sloppy if it's you know done from you know punk rock place but they just seem to be like you know too stoned to care sure all right yeah so ben cut stealing became jane's addiction's second consecutive number one modern rock single from this album it produced a classic video featuring the band shoplifting various items and um, some of the band considered this to be a novelty song Hmm. and the video was initially not being played because of worries that it would promote juvenile delinquency (laughs) Oh, we were so innocent back then. I know, different time. Crazy, I know. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, All right, well, let's listen to the song and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Been caught stealing.
Most famous dog bark in all of modern rock. Right yeah. Cool song. Yeah. I haven't listened to it with headphones. It's kind of neat. Yeah, I've been finding that with quite a few songs yeah. that I thought I knew really well. Yeah, it's cool. Like he does the sort of a really interesting randomization of the like a vocal double that's not a double. Mm-hmm. Like, so every once in a while it sounds like there's four and then two and then one and then you know so it's kind of neat. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you mentioned the dogs barking at the beginning. So those are actually Perry Farrell's dog Annie trying to get into the recording booth to retrieve a dog toy. <laughs> And uh, they just they kept just it, throw it on, yeah. And uh, <laughs> like you said, most Sweet. famous dog in modern rock. Yeah, pretty much. So, yeah, I like the song. I think uh, they keep it pretty short, which mm-hmm. is not something they always do with their right. songs. I think it's catchy. Yeah, it's got a, a real yeah. elastic bass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really in. good bass playing, great, mm-hmm. great bass sound. Like I said, I, I wasn't a huge fan, but I really liked that song. Mm-hmm. And actually, I liked a lot of stuff that I heard of theirs. So I just didn't click sure. in a way that maybe want to like go deeper sure yeah so this band won the best video at the 1991 mtv awards and uh perry didn't show up he was home in bed watching the awards on tv <laughs> because he didn't think it was worth his time oh, another three-day sex and heroin bender and his uh girlfriend at the time who was the video's director accepted the award on his behalf and uh, apparently gave a bizarre rambling speech in which she essentially said that Perry Farrell had run off with some girl he met at the Seven Eleven the day before. <laughs> and I would love to play a clip, but I, I was unable to track uh, that one down. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, you know, that sounds about right for 1990. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Jane's Addiction. So that was the last number one we're going to hear today. So we have to go a little, a little bit further down the charts. Uh, the third band we're going to listen to is called Living Color. Mm-hmm. This is a New York band formed in 1984, and they are best remembered for the song Cult of Personality from their 1988 debut album. This band is heavy metal, funk, jazz, hip-hop, all kind of crammed together. Political lyrics sometimes. Mm -hmm. I was going to say they're all African-American, but I think one of them is actually British. So, yeah, I think that was unusual for Mm -hmm. all the members to be black in alternative rock at this time. And uh, they were founded by guitarist Vernon Reed, who was ranked as number 66 in Rolling Stone's greatest 100 guitarists of all time list, <laughs> which is pretty astounding. But That's not too subjective, is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, Vernon Reed recruited actor slash singer Corey Glover after hearing him sing Happy Birthday at a friend's party, <laughs> which... Assuming that's true, that's ridiculous. Like, how good do you have to sing Happy Birthday to get picked up it for a band? Must be really good. Yeah, you got to be really good. And for those of you who are wondering, because I've heard this rumor before, Corey Glover is not related to Danny Glover, the or, actor. Or Donald Glover. Or Donald Glover. Different Glovers altogether. Be a good story, though, if they were. Yeah. Uh, so, 1990, second album called Time's Up. It reached number 13 on the album charts and spawned six singles. It features many cameos, such as Queen Latifah, Little Richard, Doug E. Fresh, and James Earl Jones. And it won the Grammy for Best Hard Rock Album. Interesting. So the first single off the album, which we're going to hear, is called Type. It hit number three on the modern rock charts. And here we go. Children 
say after that i was not a fan no i remain not a fan okay <laughs> the, the, that one didn't get better with age yeah you you remember that one i just remembered the hype you know they just uh when they showed up there was just like this insane hype around them and like mm-hmm. that song is like four bridges you know 19 parts a lot of it's just kind of flashy like music school bullshit there's things i like about this song i'm kind of a sucker for harmony so i enjoy the the big outro with the uh Everything that goes around comes around, but uh, I don't need two minutes of it. I mean, for the most part, uh, not my thing. So two of the guys in my band do this thing. Uh, it's called the Experience Hendrix, Mm-mm. where they go out and they play Hendrix songs. And I know Vernon has been on a couple of them. And from all reports, he's a super, really fun dude and really nice guy. And yeah. Very uh, easy to get along with on the road. And So I'm not a big fan of the band, but they've mentioned to me a couple of times what a cool duty is to, sure. to be around. And they've become good friends with him. Okay, cool. Um, I'll say this about the band. Listening to it is one thing, but I think if you want the full experience, you've got to watch the music videos because part of this band is their look and their style. Yeah, I remember the singer, Corey, was quite the show person. Yeah, there's a a lot of very colorful outfits and Mm -hmm. interesting things there. Yeah, but musically, it's just, I don't know, it's not my thing. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, Anyone else on the charts worth mentioning uh, that we're yeah, not going to yeah. hear? Who else was there? On yeah. There? So um, other bands that peaked, DNA, DNA. Uh, with Tom's Diner, which I always just thought was very Suzanne cool Vega. Song. Yeah, it's a very cool song. Mm-hmm. Indigo Girls are on there. Nice. Uh, Pet Shop Boys, Human League, Bob Geldof. And uh, at number 16 is Los Lobos. Oh, look at that. Yeah. What song? Down on the Riverbed. So that was on the Neighborhood record, right? Yeah. Quick rundown on history of Los Lobos, if my sources are correct. The band formed in 1973 mm-hmm. um, between Ish. high school friends. And you joined in 1984? Sort right? of. We were working on the Will the Wolf Survive record in 83 through 84. Okay. And I was fully in the band at that point, but I've heard tapes uh, from late 84 where I'm introduced as being a member of the Blasters. So I don't know. I okay. mean, were, were you on um, the And a Time to Dance EP? I produced that record. I co-produced it with T-Bone. Okay. By the time we were done with it, I was in the band. Yeah, so by the end of that record, which was would have been 82, I think, I thought I was in the band, but like I said, you know, there's right. there's evidence to the contrary. So okay. I don't know. Somewhere, sure. let's sure. say 84. Okay, sounds good. So I found a film called Population One. Mm. <laughs> you do your homework, dude. Yeah. So That's amazing. So that was, um, when I first moved to LA, this would have been probably like late 70s, there was a Dutch director named Rene Dalder mm-hmm. who was really, really, really visionary. He told us that videos were going to be this huge thing that was going to change music. And like there was no MTV. Nobody ever thought of MTV, but he saw it long time before anybody else saw it. And he had made some money in making some weird movies in Holland. So he bought this um, space in East Hollywood and it was his laboratory, more or less. So it was a recording studio, and it was a film stage. And he had conceptualized this band called The Screamers and cast The Screamers, who many people credit as being one of the, at least in L.A., like the primordial DNA of a lot of L.A. 
punk bands. I mean, mm-hmm. there was stuff going on in New York and London and stuff like that, but in LA, the Screamers, you know, you could say that they were the first LA punk band. Sure. Certainly the first one that, ones that I were aware of. It was super theatrical, really interesting. But what Rene would do is he would get people like myself, um, Flea from Chili Peppers mm-hmm. was a big part of it. And we would get free studio time if we worked on his movies. So we would score or play or, I know I'm in a couple scenes. I don't really, don't remember how they got me into that shit, but that was the trade-off. So I, the first record that I produced was done in that studio with a band called Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs, which I had, I earned the time to by working on that Population One movie, which I don't own. I should probably find it. I mean, YouTube, you know. It's that's, on YouTube, yeah. Yeah, I gotta, exactly. I see it. It was, that was a weird time. I don't, yeah. I don't even think I saw a finished the version of it back then. <laughs> yeah, I can show it. you a brief clip. Yeah, let me see it. There I am. Look at yeah. that. Wow. How old am I there? Like 12? <laughs> wow. One of the other reasons I wanted to bring this movie up oh, is because so there's a kid on a chair close to you on the spinning platform with an accordion. I don't know if you caught him. The internet is telling me that this is none other than Beck. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me because uh, Beck's father was in this crew as well. Okay. Yeah, David Campbell. Yeah. Yeah, so he was part of this uh, Renee's group of lunatics. So, yeah, that, that would stand to reason. Okay. Yeah, the thing I couldn't figure out, because to me he looks like he's 10 years old. Yeah, probably but, uh, was. That's funny. Wikipedia places his age here at like... Well, this was released in '86, so maybe it was recorded before that. No, it was way, it was recorded way before. Okay, no, this so that was, makes sense. This would have been uh, eighty seventy nine ish. Okay, yeah, probably took him that long to, to yeah. finish it and get it out. And that makes stuff like that. He could be a nine year old. Yeah, that yeah. could very well be. Yeah. All right, so we got we got a couple of modern rock stars in this movie. Uh, Population One, okay. check it out. And then in uh, 1987, that was a big year. La Bamba, the movie was released. Lou Diamond Phillips. Richie Valens biopic movie. Right. Los Lobos recorded a number of Valens songs for the soundtrack. All of them. All of them. All <laughs> of them. Much, yeah. And uh, I want to say three of them charted. Is yeah. that right? Mm-hmm. And La Bamba went all the way to number one on right. the Billboard Hot 100 for three weeks. And yeah. also, I should mention, went to number one in UK and France and Ireland and Canada. And It was a fun ride. We became involved because we were friends with Richie's family. Mm-hmm. And I remember very clearly they said, oh, you know, we sold the rights to Richie's story, but part of the rights sale was that we insisted that you guys do the music. I'm like, oh, thank you. That was yeah, very generous. Fun and surprise. It seems amazing now, but it was first-time director mm-hmm. who had only directed regional theater in Central California, never been anywhere near a movie. A lot of the people were actors in his regional theater company. They would go out and, and they would do plays in the groves, like for the farm workers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like wow. a serious... Not exactly the recipe for worldwide success story. Right. And to be brutally honest, you know, as we worked on it, I thought, you know, this is right. fun. Right. But it's not going over. And I, they kept rewriting the script. And, you know, it took them forever to cast Richie role. Like they shot the entire movie that he wasn't in and waited because they couldn't find a Richie. Mm-hmm. I remember Luis, the director, was like, don't you know any, don't you know any Latinos that could sing? I'm like, yeah, they're in my band. But then they found Lou and, it kind of all came together. I just, and I remember thinking, wow, this is a cool movie that nobody's ever going to see. Yeah. Sure, sure, wrong so we went to Europe as it was being released. And we were in Europe pretty much the whole rollout of the movie. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, pre-internet. You know, phone calls used to cost a fortune. Yeah. So the news was spotty at best. Like, you know, hey, you know, record's charting. What? Hey, it's top 200. Like, what? Yeah. And top 50. What? And we're like, this is ridiculous. There's no way. This is bullshit. This is yeah. not really happening. 
So we got home from our trip, and not three weeks later, we were opening for U2 in stadiums. Wow. Getting getting flipped off and like people <laughs> booing us the whole the entire set, wow. and then we'd start playing the bomb and be like, hey. <laughs> just crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. We uh, survived somehow. Did that change everything for you? It did for a moment, but in retrospect, once all the hubbub died down, it was done. I mean, we were back to playing the same clubs, and mm. you know, our fortunes didn't change the way like had our own music been discovered that way so right. i have no complaints you know we, we play the song people are very happy to hear it we get asked to play it all the time but you know we managed to squeeze a 40 plus year career somehow so yeah i, I don't mind I'd rather be around for a while than a shooting star i guess yeah so we had had uh you know the big success with obama yeah and then to sort of reclaim our souls from the maw of the pop music machine we did a record of folkloric latin music and then uh, we started a neighborhood record. And for this record, we the guy that had engineered the three records prior was a guy named Larry Hirsch. So Larry, he was a terrific engineer, but we agreed to let him produce us. I mean, in retrospect, it was not a great idea. He was very high strung on a good day. And he thought that uh, this record had to be the best record ever made in the history of modern music. And he would just obsess over microscopic details. We must have made the record like four times. Oh. You know? Up to that point, everything we had done had been relatively live or, you know, at least try to capture some spirit of it. And that record was just, you know, I just remember doing take after take after take after take and it was never good enough. And at one point there was another song on the record where Larry decided that none of us were good enough to play on it, which <laughs> tells you a little bit. Uh, so we had Booker T, uh, Jim Keltner, Oh, a duck done. So it was kind of like Booker T and the MGs minus Al Jackson. Yeah. And then I just remembered like all this like hubbub building up to this recording session with these, you know, musicians I certainly admired, you know, but right. I would just kind of want to hear what happened. And it was one of those deals where, you know, the first take was pretty good, but it wasn't the take. And then second take was pretty good and it wasn't the take. And then third take was, no, this is going the wrong way. And fourth take and fifth take. And then. Like I said, Larry was just completely obsessed. And I left about four in the morning and they were on take 40 something. And wow. I was just like, this is, but he just couldn't let it go. You know, we survived it, obviously. It was, yeah. and you know, I'm still friends with him, still talk to him. And you know, I, I could imagine the mindset, you know, like he felt like it, it had to be perfect. Right. And you know, most of the things that are perfect are accidents, you yeah. know, certainly in rock and roll anyway. So I just remembered feeling uh, really bored by the record by the time we were done with really? it. And then we had to go tour it for a couple of years. And, yeah. Was that tough yeah. on the band? It was, and actually what it did is it gave us this sense that this is the opposite of how we will make records, and mm -hmm. this is the opposite of how we will conduct our career. Like, we stopped listening to, to anybody, basically, yeah, and, uh, you know, followed our own counsel and tried to make records anyway that, you know, try to imbue them with some mystery from us not really knowing the songs, sure. you know? right. We stopped listening to our own counsel, basically, was the, the moral of the story. Like, we, we took a lot of bad advice and how we should do stuff and who we should listen to and sure. you know, end up just spending a ton of money and making a record that bored the crap out of us. So we stopped doing that. Yeah. Well, should <laughs> yeah, we just listen to it? Yeah. On that note, here it is, uh, Down on the Riverbed.
totally forgot there's a harmonica partner. That was you? Yeah. How's it sound? Uh, it sounds right. It sounds yeah. pretty good. It's definitely a, a Larry Hirsch mix. You know, I mean, that's kind of, he's really, really, really good mixer. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it, it was a process that became boring, but the music was cool and, you know, the tracks were, I mean, that's a good one. Yeah. It's yeah, a, I, I forgot, you know, Hyatt was all over that record. He, I think he sang on a couple of songs. Pretty uh, blues-based. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a, just a riff. I mean, it mm-hmm. doesn't really change. You know? Yeah, I was going to say, it was kind of interesting that chorus um, and the verses kind of follow the same melody mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a, an ostinato, I believe, is the musical term. Yeah, so I believe that was Los Lobos's biggest modern rock chart position at 16. Well, there's a song called uh, well, Don't Me Your Baby, Will the Wolves Survive, in an era before they kept mm-hmm. the modern rock chart. Right. So we were in that era, pre-1990s, so we had songs that were all over. Yeah, um, we could say they would have charted. They would have definitely yeah. charted. I think probably would have gone higher than that mm-hmm. one, just in terms of the my memory anyway of the reception. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was uh, it was a fun time to be there. Fun time to be on you know Warner Brothers. I replacements were there and... Uh, the Del Fuegos were contemporaries of ours. X. The L.A. thing was sort of changing a little bit at that point. You know, I, I yeah. think the Jane's Addiction crew kind of moved in. And uh-huh. we, were, we sort of functionally moved out. I mean, we couldn't really play L.A., but, you know, a couple times a year back then. So Yeah. Did things change for the band when Nirvana hit big? Was there any pressure to record a grunge album? <laughs> that wouldn't have gone very far. No, you know, like that was our uh, Kiko era. So, you know, like we sort of carved out our own little niche in the firmament. And I mean, I had moved to Seattle actually right before then. So I Mm -hmm. I was kind of there for most of that insanity. So it affected me just because I got to see some of my friends become, you know, big stars and stuff. But but in terms of, you know, Lobos, it had very little to do with anything. I think, well, I I would say this. It probably forced us into a our own little place because we like the music we were making wasn't really concurrent with the rock right you know that that whole thing right and i would say maybe modern rock radio shifted shortly thereafter and maybe los lobos yeah didn't we weren't fit really in yeah much. i don't think we, we fit into it yeah that much but you know we continued to tour and work and didn't really affect i think the only thing that really kind of affected us was uh not long after the label started changing you mm-hmm. know like a lot of our friends were getting fired and moving on and the whole sense of the Warner Brothers family was dissipating quickly. Okay. So um, Los Lobos continued on, released a bunch of albums. I saw that there was a Disney album at some point. Yeah. I saw a pretty cool Sesame Street performance. We were on Sesame Street a lot and Reading Rainbow. Nice. I I didn't find that one. I got to look that one up. Yes. When I moved to Seattle, I was living on this island. Uh Uh-huh really small like seven thousand people in the whole island so it was like one room schoolhouse kind of thing okay and we were on sesame street so much that my daughter thought that everybody's dads were on sesame street like she would be at like yeah. you know, preschool like when's your dad on sesame street she just thought that that's, yeah that was a thing that dads do like when your dad you, you get on sesame street yeah nice <laughs> yeah what else won a grammy for a song from the desperado soundtrack yeah we won a few yep and I saw that you did the theme song for uh, Rango. Yeah, yeah, yeah. did Rango. I haven't seen that movie, but it looked fun. Yeah. Uh, chameleon was... that becomes a sheriff yeah. in a Wild West town. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Got to work with uh, Hans Zimmer, who turns out to be kind of a fun dude. Yeah? Yeah. Not at all the guy I pictured, you know. Yeah. Very funny guy and fun to hang around with. Cool. 
And uh, your last studio album, I want to say it was 2015, is that right? That is, that is correct, yeah, okay. case of gold. Any plans for a new one? We're just, literally just talking about it. Okay, but uh, you're on tour right now? Sort of, I mean, we're just... We, Playing some dates? Yeah, we we do like 140 dates a year, but the longest tour we'll do this year will be a week and a half. Okay. That's the one thing that we, we kind of learned early on, that the only way to really stay sane is to not leave home for months at a time. Yeah. It's expensive to come and go like that, but mm-hmm. the psyche part is uh, invaluable, as is the family relationship. So, sure. you know, we've managed to keep our families and keep our marriages yeah. Yeah. intact for 30 plus years. So I guess there's something to it. Yeah, that's uh, not always the case. No, I think uh, it's really hard to maintain your sanity when you're in a bus or in a van, or whatever, for months on end. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, I guess we can wrap it up. Was there anything? No, this was fun. Yeah. I was kind of walked down memory lane. I love seeing the yeah. movie. Man. God, I hadn't thought about that in forever. All right, That's well, really cool. Funny. Yeah. Steve, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. If anyone listening has any questions or comments or anything, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. And if you would like to find out more about Steve Berlin or Los Lobos, you can head over to steveberlinmusic.com or loslobos.org. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you, Steve, for joining us. Appreciate it.